0: Luke chapter 17, let's begin now at verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. All right, verse 1, it says very plainly, Then he said to his disciples, Jesus has just finished up the account of Lazarus and the rich man and their destinies after death. You see, one thing he made clear with that story is that eternity is for real. I mean, I remember, even though it was several weeks ago that we're in that passage, I remember being struck, almost shocked by it all over again, how plain and how powerful it was, this idea that these men were dead on earth, that it says specifically of the rich man that his body was buried, but his existence did not end. There he was in Hades, living, if you want to say breathing, conscious, aware, able to feel torment, able to feel relief from torment, aware of his surroundings, relating to other people. What the clear message of that is, among other things, eternity is For real. And even though somebody were to come back from the dead and warn us, it still wouldn't be the same impact as the power of the Word of God and His work in our life right now. No, what it means is that it's very important how we live, how we act right now. That's something that needs to sink down into our awareness. We try to push it away the best we can. Thoughts about eternity and this life coming to a close and the next life coming upon us. But it's something to think about with great regularity. Right now counts forever, either for good or for bad. And so therefore, now Jesus in his teaching, again, on the way to Jerusalem for his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, he says now in verse one, it is impossible that no offenses should come. It's inevitable that people are going to be offended. That's just how it happens. And he said this to his disciples. Can I just draw a very logical corollary from this? It is inevitable that people would offend one another within the family of God, within the body of Christ. I mean, it's not like we have to deliberately try to do it. It's just going to happen from time to time. And listen nobody should be shocked by it and nobody should be, I don't know, should be falling away from the Lord or doubting the presence or the power of God because there are offenses that come against one another in the body of Christ. No, it's not the existence of offenses that's so strange or unusual. What really marks the body of Christ is how those things are supposed to be dealt with. You know, when You find these New Testament churches that Paul would write his letters to and they were having problems or disagreements or problems one with another within those New Testament churches. Paul didn't say things like this. I can't believe that there's some kind of strife among you. No. What did he say? He said, be long suffering one another, be forgiving to one another, care about one another, love one another. This is what he said to do. So it's inevitable that offenses should come. And by the way, isn't that just good to remind ourselves of from time to time? You are going to be offended from time to time just by being in the community of Christians. So to speak, sort of metaphorically speaking, or maybe literally speaking, somebody is going to step on your toes. It's going to offend you. And if I could say this, you're going to offend somebody else. Isn't it strange how that works in life? How when somebody offends us, it's like the greatest thing in the world. When we offend somebody else, well, it's just a trifle that they should be able to love. it. It's a lot like that when you drive, isn't it? Somebody cuts me off, you know, driving on the freeway or whatever. You know, I suddenly can't believe that such idiots can drive. And this person is out to get me and probably hates me and wants to destroy my car or make a fraudulent insurance claim. You know, you start thinking all these crazy things and thoughts. Then again, when I cut somebody off, what's it? Oh, hey, sorry about that. See ya. You know, it really depends on which side of it is that whether it's a big thing or a little thing. In any regard, remember that it's inevitable that offenses should come. But don't miss the idea here. He says, but woe to him through whom they come. Essentially, Jesus said something like this. It's inevitable that the offenses should come, but do whatever you can do to not be the person through whom they come. Don't set the stumbling block in their way. Don't set a place where people can be offended by one way or another. And if you are, If you are constantly the source of offense to other people, especially, I would say, within the community of Christians, this is a very terrible thing, especially if your offense leads somebody else to perdition. This is a heavy thing to think about. Our lives spiritually have an effect on other people. I've seen this. I've seen this as I look at other people in their life with God and their walk with God. I've seen people who almost casually, almost flippantly decide that they're going to embark on a season of what we used to call. I don't even know if I can use this phrase anymore, but I'll just use what, what, what we used to call backsliding. Is that still? A, can, can I use that term and everybody knows what I'm talking about? Just for a season, they say, yeah, I I know what it is to have Christian morality and Christian standards in my life, but you know what? Forget that. I'm going to check out of my life with God for a while, and I'm just going to plunge myself into the world for a season, and, you know, God will forgive me later. I've known people who have done that, and they do that for a season, and usually they pay some kind of price for it, and and then they say, okay, now it's time for me to get right with God again. Now, you might say, well, okay, they got right with God. What's the big damage? I'll tell you what the damage is, is I've seen this more than once. They have led others away from the Lord with them, and they never come back. Isn't that a heavy thing to have on your conscience? Isn't that a heavy thing to have before the Lord? So it's inevitable that offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better, as Jesus said in verse 2, for that offending one to die a horrible death, such as having a millstone hung around your neck and being thrown into the sea. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking with word pictures here. I don't think that's going to be anybody's punishment in either this life or the life to come. But Jesus, using very strong language, saying, don't be a source of offense to other people. I have to say that this was a lesson that the church has learned really the hard way, or at least I should say, I would hope that the church has learned it. Did you know that there has been a long period of time, centuries indeed, where the majority opinion in the Christian church was, was that we should be deliberately offensive to Jewish people that we should be deliberately persecuting them and telling them how cursed they were of God and telling them how much that God hated them for rejecting the Messiah. There have been centuries in which the church thought that that was their responsibility. And you know what? The centuries in which that was the strongest in the church, church, those centuries are commonly called, you can quibble about whether or not this is historically accurate, but those are commonly called the dark ages. And it's almost as if this, It says God put an actual curse in some way upon the church for the way that it cursed the covenant people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they were so foolish to think that it was their job to be an offense to the Jewish people. How crazy is that? No, the idea should be this. Lord, if you're going to be offending anybody about there, you do it. I'm going to take it upon my viewpoint to love and to be gracious And to forgive, that's what I'm called to do, Lord. And so Jesus continues on, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now notice in verse 3, this is actually very interesting. I think very important words for the way that believers in the community of Jesus should get along with one another. He says very plainly there in verse 3, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. When someone sins against you, you shouldn't pretend that it never happened. You need to rebuke that brother in love. Or I suppose I could say sister, but let's just say brother in this case. You need to rebuke them in love, although we have to say... That this is not the only thing that the New Testament says about such things. I would say this. Love is the rule here. We obviously can't walk around and keep a record of every little offense committed against us. Oh, you stole my parking spot. I'm going to rebuke you. Or you parked too close to me. I'm going to rebuke you. Oh, you didn't smile at me in the hallway. You're going to get a rebuke from me. You know, you, you on and on. You get the idea. You see, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. And we need to be able to suffer long with the petty slights and offenses that are just part of life together, whether in the world or in the body of Christ. Matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 says this, that we should love with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. In other words, look, there's just a place in the Christian life where we shouldn't be too sensitive with each other and afraid of offending one another. You know, we shouldn't feel like we have to walk on eggshells, all run around, oh, it's so careful, we've got to be so careful not to offend one another. Yet, yet, don't forget what Jesus said here. In love, when we are sinned against in a significant way, I think we need to follow Ephesians 4.15 as the pattern. We need to speak the truth. In love to somebody else. The truth is, in a hypothetical example, and the truth is, what you said or did, it really hurt me. It really discouraged me. It, it really brought a lot of questioning or doubt into my life. It really offended me. And I'm gonna speak the truth to you and tell you about that, but I'm gonna speak it to you in love, because I'm gonna choose to think the best about you and think that you don't even realize what you did, but I need to tell you what you did. Now, I'll tell you what love doesn't do. Love doesn't go to other people and talk about it. Isn't that the truth? Somebody offends me, I want to talk to half a dozen other people about it before ever speaking to you, the person who offended me. Now, that's not love. Love would say, I want to speak to you, the person who offended me about it. Love also isn't bottling it up inside of me and letting it stew like resentment or something that ferments within me until it bursts. No, love is getting it straight with the person who offended me. Love says this, look, you did this and it really hurt me, but I believe that essentially you're my brother or sister in Christ. Let's get this thing out of the way so that we can just resume this close, wonderful connection that we would have in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says in verse 3, there's a heavy responsibility there. If he repents, forgive him. That's the challenge from Jesus. There's no other option given. When the person who offended you repents, you must forgive them. Now, what do we do with the person who never repents? Do we forgive them? You know, this is actually something that I think bears a full, you know, teaching on. And I don't know if I've ever taught on this before here. I don't know, but I, I, I should sometime. It's good. Thank you for forgiving me for that. I used to teach a very conditional forgiveness. Just as the text says here, emphasizing this: if he repents, then forgive him. I have come over the years to a different opinion. And I think that God wants us to have a very open and forgiving heart. You see, I believe this. I believe, and this is why there's sometimes a disagreement on this in the Christian world. I make a distinction, and I think the scriptures make a distinction, between forgiveness and reconciliation. I really believe that there can't be reconciliation without some kind of repentance. But I believe that I can forgive the one who sins against me even apart from their repentance. You see, because even if a relationship can't be restored, because there's no common mind arrived at, we can still choose to forgive that person who hurt us on our part, and we just wait for a work of God in the life of the restoration of the relationship. Now, there are some people who say, and some people that I respect, matter of fact, I used to teach it this way. But Jesus said, if he repents, if he repents, if he repents, not if he doesn't repent, if he repents here's my question right here. Look at the passage honestly and ask yourself a question. Did Jesus mean to narrow forgiveness with this passage or make it broader? I am still looking for the passage that really teaches us that the problem with us is that we're too forgiving and we need to narrow it more especially in the light of the words that follow, Jesus clearly did not intend to narrow the focus of forgiveness. If anything, his intent was to broaden the work of forgiveness. Jesus here wasn't trying to give us a reason not to forgive. He wasn't trying to give us a reason to be less forgiving. Matter of fact, look at what he says right there in verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Here's something else that's very complicated, and might I say very difficult to live with. Jesus here sort of took away our permission to judge another person's repentance. Look, if you sin against me seven times in a day, and each time you say, I repent, look, I'm pretty dumb, but by fourth or fifth time, I'm getting the idea that you may not be sincere in your repentance. You know, I mean, I, I'm thick, but it gets through to me after a while. Yet, what did Jesus say? He said, still forgive them. And, you know, this is another problem. I've had it, and, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's just very, very difficult. I, I I have an interpersonal, you know, problem with somebody, and uh, and they, you know, I, I, I realize, you know what, I was wrong. And, and I come to them, and I, 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 I try to be humble before them. and say, you know what? You, you're right. And, and I was wrong in this. And, and I just want you to be forgiven. I want you to forgive me. And then sometimes later on, they'll doubt the validity of your repentance. Well, you know what? Look, I do know there is a such thing as insincere repentance. There genuinely is. I mean, don't we all know that there's a such thing as insincere repentance? Have not we offered to God insincere repentance on at least one occasion or more? Yet nevertheless, Jesus said, no, no, no. Even if they do that, you forgive them. Now, again, I'm making a difference here between forgiveness and reconciliation. But I think that I can be free of the unforgiveness that I would harbor in my heart against that person. Now, this is what I want you to understand. If the intent of Jesus here was to narrow the scope of forgiveness, then notice what he says here, verse 3. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Can I just say something? You don't need increased faith to narrow the focus of forgiveness. You need increased faith to forgive people more, not less. Anyway, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So again, I think the apostles understood exactly what Jesus spoke about here. They recognized That great faith is needed to get along with people the way that Jesus spoke of here. Great faith is needed if I'm not going to unnecessarily offend people or be offended by them. Great faith is needed if I'm going to be a person who's forgiving and long-suffering with other people. Great faith is needed if I'm going to be the kind of person who will, in the proper way, speaking the truth in love, rebuke somebody who sins against me. You need a lot of faith for that, don't you? Now, Jesus here in response to this idea of faith says that if you have faith as a mustard seed, What does he say? You can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Supposedly, the ancient rabbis and the ancient people thought that the roots of a mulberry tree were especially long and strong in the ground. And so Jesus is using a very dramatic example that faith is so mighty that it can even pull out this kind of tree from the roots. And so he says it can do that and just throw it out, be planted in the seed. But notice, Jesus says that even a mustard seed's worth of faith can do that. And that's a very small seed. And this is what Jesus is telling us. That actually, more important than the amount of faith that a person has, more important than the amount is the quality of the faith that a person has, especially in what that faith is placed upon. A small amount of faith can accomplish great things when you put that small amount in faith in a great and mighty God. Sometimes we get mixed up about this. Now, look, I'm all for people having more faith. I'm all for people having greater faith. I want to have greater faith. But what's most important is for me to have more faith or greater faith in the true and living God. And when that's the case, great things happen. You see, little faith can accomplish great things. I think great faith can accomplish even greater things. But what matters most is the object of our faith. Here's a great illustration that I heard before, and I think it's very effective. If you're out ice skating, it's better to have small faith on thick ice than it is to have big faith on thin ice. You see, it's the, it's the object of faith that's most important. And when our faith is in the true and living God, then even a small amount of faith can accomplish great things. Now, verse seven, he continues on. He says, and which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he think that servant, excuse me, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what is our duty to do. This is a very interesting passage because here Jesus is speaking very much to the heart of living for God and serving him. And he's using the illustration of a man who has a servant and the servant has been hard at work all day. He's been out plowing or tending sheep. You see, Jesus just spoke to his disciples about the great works that are possible with a little bit of faith. And ladies and gentlemen, it's really something when you see God do something, when you trust him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, sometimes this is why we love to encourage people to go out and take missions trips or to do some kind of outreach to sort of put themselves out of their normal boundaries and say, God, I'm just going to do something out of the out of the usual and trust you in some way. Because when you do that so often, God does something really wonderful, really amazing. And it's not like he can only work when you go somewhere else or do something special. But really, it's just the exercise of your faith. You've trusted God in a unique way, and God blesses it in a unique way. And that's a very wonderful demonstration of this power of faith. But here's the difficulty. Whenever God uses somebody, there's always the difficulty of pride rising up, isn't there? Let me tell you, it is a thrill to know that God has used you to touch the life of somebody else. Whether he's used you to touch them in a practical need, whether he's used you to touch them in bringing them to salvation, whether he's used you to touch you in some other way. But when God uses you to touch another life in a powerful way, you know, there's something absolutely thrilling about that. I think that that's why now Jesus speaks to them about pride and the might kind of mentality. So he says, you're you're like the servant out there. You're doing the work of plowing. You're doing the work of tending sheep. It's hard work. And then what do you do? Where you come in after that and the servant says, well, you know, the servant comes in and he's tired. He's worked hard all day. And what does the master say? Does the master say, oh, servant, why don't you sit down and let me get you dinner? Would you like a little extra iced tea? What can I get you? The master didn't do that at all. What does he say to the servant? He says, Okay, look, I'm going to sit down and I want you to make my dinner and take care of me. And when all that's done, then maybe you can get a little something for yourself. You see, listen, this is what the servant has to do. He just has to recognize I'm a servant and all of that stuff is hard work. But at the end of it, look there in verse nine, he says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Now, think about this institution of the master and the servant in the ancient world. Was the master always saying to the servant, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the work you do. It doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that today in employer-employee relationships. There you are working for your boss all day long. You do so much. How often does your boss really say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do? I mean, if he says it sometimes, great, good for you, but he never says it enough. He never says it as much as you deserve it. And the master certainly doesn't say it to a servant. He just doesn't thank him. You see, Jesus is speaking here to an attitude of heart that we must have that we do not serve Jesus inwardly demanding that he thank us or that he praise us. Jesus, I'll serve you, but only if you'll exalt me in some way, only if you'll thank us. Now, it seems strange that Jesus would thank us in light of all that he's done for us. You know, look, let, let's just be straight about this, right? I mean, here I'm up here, I'm a pastor man standing on the platform. Um, I'm in vocational ministry. I mean, this is, this is blessedly, it's not only the calling, it's not only what I believe I'm gifted of God to do, but it's also how I earn my living. I mean, and it's pretty great. Look, I, I have to say, I, I'm thrilled, I really, I'm thrilled that I get paid to study and teach the Bible. Now, that's not the only thing I do in ministry, but man, that's one of my main focuses. And it's a thrill to me that I get to do that because I really would. I'd do it for nothing. Don't tell the elders that. But I mean, I'm just thrilled to be able to do this. And so I get to do it, and sometimes I really get that sense that God's using it, and God's using this it, wonderful, yes, Lord, I serve you, I serve your people, I want to do that, and I don't want to blow it up, but I just say, yes, I know that. But when I think about whatever it is that I do for God, whatever sacrifices I just make, whenever I get too much of that in your mind, I need to think again and again at the cross. Because let me tell you something, whatever I may do for God, whatever it may be on my mind that I do or what sacrifices I make, it is nothing. It is like the size of a drop of water compared to the Pacific Ocean, what I do for Jesus and what he has done for me. I'll just say he doesn't, I don't deserve, I'll put it this way, I don't deserve one single thank you from him. He deserves all the thank yous because of all that he's done for me. And it's, Seems strange that Jesus would ever, ever thank me, considering all that I've left undone in serving him. Doesn't that kind of hit? You know, I I could stand for, yes, here I am. David Guzik, servant of the Lord. You know, and tell you, oh, I do this, oh, I do that. Listen, I know in my mind and my heart all that I've left undone. Every opportunity that God has given me that for whatever reason, maybe out of disobedience, maybe it just out of laziness, I haven't done. Every servant of God knows that if I I could have been more diligent, I could have done more for the Lord. That Jesus doesn't owe me a single bit of thanks. And it seems strange as well when I think. He doesn't owe me any thanks whatsoever. Because isn't it true? Anything that I've been able to do for him, it's because he's worked in me. I I mean, if I'm a teacher of God's word, it's because he's gifted me to do it. How can I get any thanks for that? I'm just doing what he's gifted me to do. He's the one who gets the thanks. It just just makes no sense whatsoever that Jesus would thank me at all. Yet strangely, the Bible says that he will thank and reward us. Even though we don't deserve it, he's going to look at the work of each one of his servants and to each one of his faithful ones, what will he say? Well done, you good and faithful servant. Those are completely undeserved words. It's almost as he has no reason to thank me. Yet he does, just as much as that master had no really reason or inclination to thank the servant. And so Jesus says something very powerful. That at the end of it all, what should we do? He says, so likewise you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, that kind of attitude that Jesus spoke of here, let me tell you, and I tell you this earnestly, it's not false humility. There is something grotesque about false humility. Oh, I can't teach the Bible at all. No, you know, I don't know how to talk in front of anybody. You know, whatever you want to say, the musician, oh, I'm no good. What's And they're great. No, that kind of false humility is strange. It's almost grotesque. But no, it's not a false humility. Rather, it's an ability just to be able to say that we do um, everything we do for God is very, very small in relation to what he has done for us. Matter of fact, what do we say here in verse 10? It says, we have only done what is our duty to do. What Jesus has done for me is, He did out of the pure motivation of love. Anything I do for him is out of duty, is out of repaying him. Look, friends, this is why it's so important for Bible teachers to emphasize what the Bible itself teaches, that everything we do for God, we do as a return for what he's already done for us. You and I can never put God in our debt. I can never be so good or serve God so wonderfully that God says, well, I really owe David something. Never, not a thousand years. It can never happen that way. Instead, he is so, so given so much more than I can ever give to him. Anything I do for him, any sacrifice I made, even if I would make that sacrifice of laying down my actual physical life, it would still be small in comparison to what he's done for me. And so I would say he have only done what is my duty to do. And I think that when our hearts are right, we live, we act as if we're happy to serve the Lord in this way. All right, let's close now with a look at this great story that takes us to verse 19. We're going to go as far as verse 19. It's the cleansing of the lepers, the 10 lepers. Now, you've got to be careful with this. We're talking about lepers, the ones with the skin disease, not leopards, the animals that are like tigers or something. 10 lepers, verse 11. Now, it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And as they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So now Jesus is on his way again, very deliberately walking that distance from Galilee, making his way southward towards Jerusalem, where he will go for the final week there in Jerusalem before that feast of Passover where Jesus will be betrayed and arrested and will suffer and die and then rise again. He's on the way for this. this is the last journey. And he comes across these lepers in this border area between Samaria and Galilee. And what do the lepers do? Verse 13, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. I think this is wonderful because, first of all, this was like a prayer meeting, wasn't it? These ten men came together and with one voice they made a prayer to Jesus Have mercy on us. And you know what's wonderful about this? There were at least some Jews in the group and some Samaritans. We know there was at least one Samaritan from what we learned later on. And if you know much about biblical culture and stuff, you know that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along very well, right? But notice this here they are united by their common misery. They're all lepers. So I don't care if you're Jewish, I don't care if you're Samaritan, we're all lepers together, so let's pray to Jesus together. Look, I, I think there's something wonderful by illustration there, when we just recognize that we're all sinners before God. You know what, we're all in, God's, uh, God, uh, we are all in debt to God, we're sinners before him, okay God, now we can come together. It just doesn't matter what differences might divide us. Here we are, we just come together before you god doesn 't matter what those backgrounds are. so we come before Jesus with that kind of humility, and what does Jesus say? Verse fourteen? So when he saw them, he said to them, "Go show yourselves to the priests." and so it was that they as they went, they were cleansed. This is weird. you want to know what 's weird about this? Okay, there was a ceremony in the Levitical law. For going to the priest and having the priest inspect you once you were healed of leprosy. Now, it never happened because people were never healed of leprosy except when Jesus came along. And then maybe a few rare occasions in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of a few one-offs. Okay, but anyway, it was a rarely, rarely used ceremony there at the uh, priest's office or whatever. Jesus told them to go to the priest As if they were already healed. There was no point in showing yourself to the priest if you weren't healed. So Jesus told them, I want you to go ahead and act as if you're healed and go to the priest and show yourself. Now, would anybody blame those priests for saying, are you crazy, Jesus? Why don't you do this, Jesus? Heal me first and then I'll go to the priest. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You go on your way to the priest and let's see what happens. Now, this is what's beautiful. You saw before, right there in verse 13, what did they say? They said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And don't you think that in a way Jesus is calling them on that? Hey, you guys called me Master. If you call me Master, then do what I tell you to do. Well, no, but you see, I don't want to go to the priest if I'm not healed of my leprosy. If you call me Master, just do what I tell you to do. I think this is wonderful. Jesus, in a sense, is calling them on the words that they gave to Jesus. That got my mind spinning when I think about that. I thought, Jesus, what if you started calling me on the words I say to you? I think about our times of worship, right? How we pour out all this stuff about love and surrender and commitment to God. Wouldn't it be great for Jesus just to turn around and speak to me? Well, you sang this to me today. Shouldn't I treat you as if you actually believe it? You called me master. Master. So aren't you going to do what I tell you to do? I think it's a good thing for us just to very seriously consider that. Jesus, if I say this about you, you have the full right to treat me as if I believe it. And that's what he did with these lepers. So they went. And did you see what happened? It's amazing. Verse 14. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. God blessed the faith of these lepers. And on the way to the priest, they actually gave the priest something to see. They were cleansed. They were healed on the way there. You just think it was the most wonderful miracle. This great stretching of faith that just as God does that so often in our lives, we're in some very powerful, demonstrable way. He'll stretch our faith. And this is what he had to do, had them to do. But notice this, verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned. And with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Now, if we just stop right there at verse 16, we go, hooray, isn't that great? One of the guys, and he was a Samaritan. He came back and he was loud in thanking Jesus. Yes, loud, clear. Jesus, I'm so thankful. Isn't this wonderful? And the guy who did this, the guy who praised Jesus so loudly, was a Samaritan. How beautiful that is that now he's worshiping the Jewish Messiah. It's just fantastic. This is beautiful. But did you notice the one word in there in verses 15 and 16? What was that one word? And one of them. Look at what Jesus replied with verse 17. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not found any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. In verse 17, Jesus said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Jesus missed it when people were blessed by him, but they did not give thanks or praise unto him. This is a dramatic pause to let that sink in. Isn't that staggering? When God does something in my life and I don't thank him and praise him for it, Jesus notices it, And he says, why isn't David praising me? Where are the nine? Where are they? Where are these people? I've done so much for them, and they they don't thank me. Now listen, it just speaks to me very powerfully. No matter how much we thank and praise the Lord, can we not find some reason to thank and praise him more? And look, I know people, I know. I know sometimes you just think, you know, this whole singing stuff, I'm not into it. Well, first of all, I, I understand. Maybe you're not a good singer. Maybe you can't keep a beat, you know. Maybe you need a metronome just to know when to clap or something like that. Maybe it's a, you know what, look, look. A Bible doesn't tell you to sing because you like it. It tells you to sing because God likes it. And Jesus notices when we don't return thanks and praise from him. But our our thanks and praise to him shouldn't just be in singing. Shouldn't it just be what's on our lips, what's in our hearts all the time? Thanks and praise and gratitude to God. I remember reading some from Matthew Henry a long time ago. Matthew Henry was a famous Bible commentator. and, And one day somebody mugged him and stole his wallet. So he wrote in his diary that night three things he was thankful about because his wallet was stolen. Number one, I'm thankful that I've never been robbed before. Okay, well, that's pretty good. Number two, I'm thankful that even though they took my wallet, he didn't take my life. Okay, that's pretty good. Actually, there's four things, not three. Number three, even though they took all the money I had in that wallet, I'm thankful that it wasn't very much. And then number four, he said, I'm thankful that I was the one who was robbed and not the one who robbed somebody else. Look, if Matthew Henry could find four things to be thankful for when he was mugged, what does that say about the state of thankfulness in my life? No, no, no. We need to have thankful, praising hearts. God has done so much for us in Christ Jesus and in every day. We say, thank you, Lord. Father, that's my prayer. Here we are, Lord, and I, I just stand before these people and I simply say, Lord. I am an unprofitable servant. I've only done what is my duty to do. And Lord, I just pray that your grace helping me and helping all of us, we would fulfill that duty more and more. Never, Lord, for a moment, thinking that we can earn some kind of recompense before you, because we know that we can't. But no, Lord, out of just simple gratitude. In debt to you. And Lord, I want to pray, especially here this evening for those who have trouble with this whole issue of forgiveness for those who have trouble with offenses and and maybe, Lord, uh, rebuking somebody, speaking the truth in love. Lord, I know that these are particularly difficult problems in getting along with each other. Would you give us wisdom from above in doing it? We need that, Jesus. We need the grace and the presence of your spirit with us to do it. So please move among us. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that at the end of it all, you will say unto your faithful servants, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you for it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.